Podcast One production. I'm Adam Shand and this is episode four of Understate Lawyer X. As we know, a number of dangerous criminals could walk free from jail because Nicola Gobbo breached client privilege. You might say, what's the big deal? These villains deserve to be in jail. What if some of her targets were genuinely innocent, though, and Gobbo helped to build a case on lies that could follow the suspects for life? Two former police officers find themselves in that predicament today. Never charged, but still under suspicion, 16 years later, for murder. It fitted rather neatly into a theory that, uh, well, police may have been involved or complicit in the gangland murders. That's Peter Lawler, known as Stash in the job, a former detective sergeant with more than 30 years' service with Victoria Police. So, without critically questioning this person's claims, they allowed him to make a series of statements over a number of years, seven statements, and towards the end, it appeared that they were massaging the statements of this uh, informer to suit the facts so that they could build a case that was strong enough to justify charging both Dave and I with with murder. And this is his former colleague and friend, David Waters. You know, an investigation is a search for the truth in the interest of justice in accordance with the specifications of the law. You do it properly. You just don't make your own agenda the priority. Waters and Lawler claim that former Chief Commissioner Simon Overland was determined to put them in jail for a murder they had nothing to do with. And Nicola Gobbo did her utmost to assist. So he was in a position where he had to use everything at his disposal to try and make it work. In doing so, he undermined it and railroaded a murder investigation. So how did this happen? In June 2003, Shane Chartres Abbott, a male prostitute who claimed to be an ancient vampire, was slain in the front garden of his home. Chartres Abbott was accosted by two men as he left home with his girlfriend and her father. The men assaulted the older man and then shot Chartres Abbott twice, once in the neck. Despite a large police search involving the dog squad and a police helicopter, no trace of the gunman was found. Chartres Abbott was on his way to court. He faced trial for the rape and mutilation of a client I called Penny in my podcast, The Trials of the Vampire. Shane claimed he was innocent. He was planning to take the stand and lift the lid on a high-level conspiracy, a sex ring that included judges, politicians and senior police. He said the client, Penny, confessed that her role was to lure Shane to a cheap motel in Melbourne, South Yarra, where he would be the star of a snuff movie that would culminate in his murder. But Chartres Abbott never made it to court. Two men accosted him as he left home. He was shot dead in his driveway at point-blank range. (laughs) 
Shane had feared that corrupt police were on his trail. However, six days after the murder, a call to Crime Stoppers yielded two red-hot suspects who were not police. Caller stated that they were phoning about the murder of the male prostitute. Police should talk to her ex-boyfriend, Mark, aged 37 or 38. Caller stated he is violent, he is a drug dealer, he has been charged with drug dealing before. Caller described Mark as being 5 foot 11 inches, about 85 to 90 kilograms, Australian Caucasian with blonde hair and muscles. The caller was a car dealer named Max Walker and the man he was talking about was Mark Adrian Perry. Walker was a drug distributor for Perry in Melbourne's gay scene. And the bloke volunteers all his details. The police go and speak to him a fortnight later. Walker told investigators a lot about Mark Perry. He said Perry was selling drugs with a man named Roberto Krupe, otherwise known as Baldy. Krupe's family was once a force in inner-city Collingwood. Roberto's brother Claudio was an armed robber who was briefly a suspect in the bombing of the Russell Street Police Headquarters in 1986. Walker claimed that Perry had told him he wanted to get Chartres Abbott for raping Penny. He's making admissions to dealing in commercial quantities of drugs and saying how this bloke, Mark Perry, was involved with him and how, when this happened, he became so obsessed with it that the drug business fell off and he was dirty on that. So now we've got an obvious avenue of inquiry to follow. This could have been enough to pull Perry and Krupe in for questioning, but that didn't happen. David Waters. What you would do is, if you go and they've found out who he is, they've looked at his prior convictions, they've realised that he's not just some mug off the street, that he might be a bit serious. So, okay, he mightn't volunteer anything to you, but you would tie him down to a story right from the outset. At least talk to him. Talk to him, find out his movements, where he is, what he's been doing, and you would start your investigation. There's where you start. Because the bottom line is just about every one of Perry's friends gave him up. Every one of them. And we're talking about people not sitting on the pew next to him at the church. These are people involved in serious criminal activity and volunteering their involvement in it. Why? (laughs) Over the next year, police watched Mark Perry from a distance. They let him go to Thailand with his wife and baby daughter. Even when he returned in April 2005, police didn't seek him out for questioning. Later that year, investigators appealed for help through the media. They were seeking a man named Mark Andrew, which of course was Mark Perry's alias. Included in the release was an identical picture of Andrew's, which naturally enough bore a striking resemblance to Perry. It drew immediate results. Another insider stepped up with information. Information from confidential source. Mark Andrew is the boyfriend of the woman that Shane Chartres Abbott raped. A couple of days prior to the murder of Chartres Abbott, a friend of Mark's by the name of who is known as said that he'd been talking to Mark and Mark told him to watch the papers as something is going to happen. This sounded a lot like Perry's business partner, Roberto Krupe. The caller went on. About four months after the murder, Mark said that the police suspected he did the shooting. Mark then left Australia for Thailand and I haven't seen him since. He was missing for a while and we thought he was dead. I found out that he's currently in jail in Spain. If anyone would know where Mark was, it would be... Walker's evidence tallied with the new material. There was a motive and an opportunity for Perry to kill Chartres Abbott. 
And much later, Chartres Abbott's alleged victim, Penny, would tell police that Perry had confessed to the murder in a manner that perfectly fit the forensic evidence. An actor is reading from the transcript. He said that he put his arm around the guy's neck and then shot him in the head. When he told me this, he did the actual motions with his arm and hand. He showed me by putting one arm around his neck and with the other hand, he made a gun sign out of his fingers and pointed it at his head. Mark Perry was acquitted of the murder and Nicola Gobbo bears some responsibility for this. As we know, the police, with Gobbo's help, were doing deals with hitmen, eager to rat on their former bosses. On the table were reductions in sentences, waiving of tax bills and immunity from asset seizures. One individual stepped up to confess he'd killed the vampire. I called him the author in my podcast, The Trials of the Vampire. I can't discuss his criminal history or his possible links to other cases for legal reasons. All I can say is that whilst assisting police with another case, the author offered homicide detectives information on the killing of Chartres Abbott. Chris Costo is a former investigator. This guy's an inmate at the time, and he was being interviewed in relation to other matters. There, out of the blue, he points to the inside of his hand, and where in big letters he had the word vampire in capital letters. Chip Legrand is chief reporter for The Age newspaper. From the moment that the author first writes the word vampire on his hand and shows that to uh, Peter Trickius, who's one of the um, prior detectives at the time, he does that with the full knowledge that what police want more than anything is to find corrupt police that are involved in the, in the gangland war. In 2006, the author began his confession, which would unfold over seven years. There were dozens of meetings with investigators and a thousand phone calls. An actor is reading from the transcript. As a result of police investigations into other matters, I've decided to cooperate with police in relation to the death of a person. I believe his name was Shane Chartres Abbott, otherwise nicknamed in the press as the Vampire. The author would also accuse his protege, Evangelist Gooses, of being his accomplice in the murder. And he would try to establish a link to Mark Perry, who had the best motive to kill Shane. He claimed the killing was a favour to a friend in Queensland called Warren Shea, who did know Perry personally. It was for personal reasons, a result of a favour for a favour. I decided to help eliminate a person whom I regarded as an animal and a danger to other females. It was a revenge killing. Police believed the author, even though a lot of what he said didn't make sense. They listened because he promised to incriminate past and serving police in the murder. Chip Legrand. He knew ultimately what police wanted and he knew the value of that. He knew that if, if he could construct a story that would lead to suspicion, perhaps even um, a charge of police on serious crimes connected with the gangland war, that that would buy him an enormous amount of leverage in terms of being able to improve his own situation and probably most importantly to be in control. His evidence was sensational. He said a serving police officer had helped him create an alibi. On the day of the murder of Chartres Abbott, I presented myself to the Pran police station in order to have an outstanding warrant executed upon myself. The person who was to execute this warrant was to be Detective Peter Lawler. It would be highly unlikely for an individual to kill someone that day and then present himself to a police station the very same day. 
In other words, it was an alibi which could be corroborated by Peter Lawler. This link to a serving officer was a eureka moment for Deputy Commissioner Simon Overland. The author's claim was uncorroborated, but Overland called it the showstopper, which proved the nexus between corrupt police and the gangland killings. An actor is reading from his statement. This is the smoking gun the media has been looking for, royal commissions and all the rest of it. So in terms of risk to the organisation, it does not get much bigger than this. We agreed that we needed to get some task forces set up to deal with it. And so the Briars Task Force was created. This became the most expensive investigation in Victoria Police's history and among its least successful. $30 million was spent trying to stand up the author's story. If they were banging their heads against the wall because the material they were trying to investigate was absolute lies and fabricated from the start, instead of going back to there to say, why isn't this working out? Why can't we substantiate this? Bugger that. We'll go the easy option. The moment it becomes obvious based on her testimony or by other material that she was being sent in there by the police, the Piranhas, the Briars or Petra, whoever else it might be, that's just about game over. In 2019, a Royal Commission heard testimony that Gobbo played an intrinsic role in the Briars investigation. She helped police iron out the many factual errors and inconsistencies in the author's evidence. The police and Gobbo must have known how unreliable their informant was. David McCulloch. How is the author regarded within the prison system? The author is regarded as the lowest form of inmate, as low as what sexual offenders are regarded as. Nothing can get lower than that. He's regarded as untrustworthy. There are court transcripts, Supreme Court justices, who have made comment along the lines of... If the author said it was raining outside, you would have to put your head out the window. It's very interesting. Most people would think that if a policeman or a former policeman was charged, that that was a good karma. But most of the guys knew that if these people were being charged on the say-so of the author, it had to be totally untrue. Yet this reputation for treachery and deceit did not deter the Briars investigators, even if Nicola Gobbo was needed to shore up the author's story. Evidence before the Royal Commission indicates Nicola Gobbo was in the thick of the action. The author has a Fagan-like personality. David McCulloch, who featured in my podcast Jailhouse Lawyer, was in Barwon Jail while this story was unfolding, and he's helped one of the accused in this case, Ange Goosis, to clear his name of any involvement in the Chartres Abbott murder. And we now know that Nicola Gobbo was speaking to the author even before he begins making his statements and that she goes out and she seeks information to help bolster weak areas of it. So she's part and parcel of this whole manufacturing of a case. Absolutely. I think she manufactured everyone that had been charged in the Charters Abbott matter totally and was able to get away with it. What's most interesting is it's now coming out in the Royal Commission that the author and Nicola Gobble had many more meetings than what has been stated thus far. And even more to the point is that there were senior police officers. They are now telling the commission that we did not trust the author, but higher command took control of that situation. 
The first meeting happened in 2006, before the author began talking about the killing of Shane Chartres Abbott. They carried on meeting over six months as the author was compiling his first statement, David Waters. They're having trouble with his story because the first statement, it takes six sittings to take one statement over six months. And it comes back and says, now the date is such and such and we're resuming this statement. Now, the fascinating thing about that is that when it comes back and starts, all of a sudden there's new memories and, oh, I want to correct this. Now, in between, she's been in there. So, Gobbo was regularly visiting the author, but this was kept secret. Her trick was to go into the prison, ask to see someone else, but she had unfettered access to the whole prison because that was organised by the Piranha Task Force. So she would go and nominate one person on the book, on the records, then while she's in there, she'd call out all these other people to the professional visit box. Waters had known Gobbo socially and professionally for a number of years. She'd represented him in another legal matter a few years before. Waters warmed to Gobbo's streetwise personality and they bonded over long lunches. There were signs that she was getting very close to the cops. We um, used to always go out for lunch, the old good old boozy lunch, and we'd every Friday we'd go for lunch and it'd be in the city and inevitably we'd end up back at a hotel around near the court precincts. And there'd be people coming in after hours, five, six o'clock at night, and be standing having a drink. And Nicky Gobbo used to come in quite often. And at one stage there, we thought it was hilarious because she'd have a number of phones on her, two or three phones. And one of the phones would ring and her response would be, oh, fucking piranhas, leave me alone. The police? The piranha task force. Oh, fucking homicide's got off. Oh, I've had enough of these, but, you know. And they were ringing it and the tone of her response to the phone call when she noticed who was calling was that if they were pestering her. It wasn't someone ringing to say something in relation to a client or your client's just been arrested. It, wasn't, it was more sort of ball-breaking sort of stuff and she'd go, oh, fucking... Pr-. Showing off. No, well, we thought that. But then what she'd do is hang up, then get one of the other phones out and go and ring someone. A client or a lover or... I'd say, you know, a client. So she's having different phones. Obviously, someone supplied a phone, whatever. The Royal Commission heard evidence that Gobbo had received a mobile phone from a former lover, Steve Campbell, at the behest of her then-client and possible lover, Azam Ahmed. As this anecdote demonstrates, being Nicola Gobbo wasn't easy at this time. You know, we thought it was quite funny that this is what was going on, you know, and, you know, I think I made the comment it would have been easier to put her through the academy, you know, because <laughs> here she is at the beck and call of the coppers and then going off and ringing someone, obviously, what they wanted her to do or whatever. Now, that's 05, 06, around that period. Waters might have picked his friend Nicky was working undercover for Victoria Police. What he didn't know then was that he was one of her targets. I thought I was a friend of hers as well. As well as a professional, I just still can't sort of sit there and give you an honest answer at the moment. I'm just sort of gutted more than anything else because for her to be sent in as an undercover operative in that position and to do that, just treachery like, just ultimate betrayal. Gobbo's job was to gather information while baiting Waters with leads from the investigation to test his reactions. Sometimes this was false information. She began in late 2007, after Waters and Lawler had given evidence before the Office of Police Integrity. 
In these secret hearings, they were accused of involvement in the slaying of Shane Chartres Abbott on the say-so of the author. Confused and upset about the allegations, Waters went to see his lawyer, Nicola Gobbo, as she told investigators in a draft statement in May 2009. It's read here by an actor. On September 13, 2007, Waters visited me in my chambers unannounced. During this visit, he was being very cautious. He appeared very paranoid and thought he might have been followed. Waters took me to a stairwell adjoining my office where we had a conversation about his appearance at the OPI. Waters could not understand why he was being accused. He'd never heard of Shane Chartres Abbott until he was dragged into the Office of Police Integrity's Star Chamber. Gobbo had rattled him even further with her next piece of mail, as she called it. The Briars Task Force thought that Waters and Lawler were responsible for giving the killer the address of the victim. I further advised him that if investigators established what computer base or where the address came from, they were confident of charging Waters and Lawler. At a later meeting, they discussed the question of the address again. He had spoken to Stash. Peter Lawler. And he was very calm. And he told me Stash had confirmed that he did not access the computers to get the address, so there was nothing to worry about there. The way this was said to me led me to the conclusion that Lawler had got the address, but not that way. He was bragging about his knowledge of the investigation saying that he knew that there were 50 phone lines off. Meaning they were bugged. And police were at the statement-taking stage. The author alleged that Lawler had given the killer the victim's address. This had taken place in a city hotel a few days before the murder. Waters and Lawler had been there with the author and other police and associates had been in on this plot. There were a number of problems with this story, according to Waters. Look, it's impossible for them to have anything on me because, firstly, I didn't do it. I didn't know anything about it. And, secondly, at the time, I meant to be having this big meeting in June 2003 with Peter Layla. I was working up in Kalgoorlie, 600 k's past that on a mine. I had machinery up there. I was working. I wasn't even in Melbourne. Lo and behold the author's story chart starts to change. So now we've gone to, oh, look, it might not have been June, it might have been earlier, it might have been later. So we've gone from June 2003 to about a 12-week possibility of anywhere in between those 12 weeks it could have happened, right? So they've opened it up. The author also claimed that he'd given the murder weapon to Waters at a meeting in Flemington on the day after the murder. After the murder, I drove the car and Ange was the front seat passenger. We stopped outside a hotel in Flemington and Ange got out with the plastic bag which contained the gun, scanner and I think the beanies. Ange then gave those items to Dave Waters. Lawyer X was pressed into service again to confirm this crucial detail tying Waters to the killing. She came to me, she said, look, I've heard on the grapevine that he said he gave you the gun on the morning after the shooting. And I said, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) She said, well, I've heard, it's pretty reliable information that he's saying that he gave you the gun that was used to shoot the vampire. I said, what a load of shit. I said, listen, I'll tell you what, that morning, right, because I've looked up what the dates, and I said, I can tell you where I was. I was at Poynton's Nursery in Mooney Ponds having a meeting with a bloke from the city of Mooney Valley because we were working for them at the time, doing earthworks, and the next morning I was driving to Kalgoorlie, so I had to get everything sorted out as to what was going to happen with the workers while I was away. So as for meetings with him and getting it's impossible again. I wasn't there. 
So then, lo and behold, the last statement that comes out from the author goes into details of things, and then there's a throwaway line in there, oh, and by the way, I remembered I went to the Mooney Ponds Junction that day. Now, that was six years later. Which puts you in the same vicinity. In the same vicinity. So they've tried to put him in the same vicinity of me to give room to move because I know that I've got an alibi for that morning. And that information has come? Only from her, from Lawyer X. But all that paled when compared to what Gobbo apparently told police in her May 2009 statement, which was never signed. Gobbo claimed she met Mark Perry at his lawyer's office and Perry had admitted to having killed the vampire. She'd never met Perry before, and she wasn't representing him. He just came right up with this spontaneous confession. An actor is reading her statement. He told me that he had arranged for Chartres Abbott to be murdered in retribution for the rape of a girlfriend or ex-girlfriend. He also told me that... The author... ...had actually carried out the murder. This came up in the context of talking about drug trafficking and police corruption. This perfectly matched the Briars' case, but strangely, this bombshell was never included in the brief of evidence against Perry. In fact, one of the police who took that statement denied Gobbo ever said anything about a confession. Perry denied making the confession, and Gobbo never signed the statement. It's never been explained how all this happened. In mid-2007, Mark Perry disappeared and spent the next six years on the run. He was finally caught in Perth in 2013 and charged with Shane Chartres-Abbott's murder, along with his friend Warren Shea and the author's protégé, Ange Gooses. Waters and Lawler were never charged. In 2014, the author recanted his evidence in court and Mark Perry, Shea and Gooses were all acquitted. It seemed that no one would face justice for the murder of Shane Chartres-Abbott. However, the 2019 Royal Commission has brought new evidence to light about the investigation and Nicola Gobbo's role in it. Peter Lawler. Right from the start, we have said that uh, we were never involved. Dave, both Dave and I were never involved in the murder of uh, Chartres Abbott. And up until uh, the revelation of Lawyer X, uh, we thought that uh, we could take the matter no further. David Waters. You've got the highest profile and most expensive investigation ever undertaken by Victoria Police that's sitting there and it's the elephant in the room and it's never going to go away until it's resolved. From a week out from the initial murder, this was solvable. There's a lot of people, ex-members, homicide squad people, that originally were bewildered by the propaganda war that went on about this. They have looked at the material that's now in our possession and gone through it and said, the author never killed this bloke. Exactly what anyone else in the know has said. And they have said, the bleeding obvious, who did it? And who facilitated him being acquitted? <laughs> like, that's pretty serious stuff. And you mentioned the Chartres Abbott family. I mean, if I was them, I would be screaming if it was my son. They are. Well, I'm glad and I really feel for him, Adam, and I've said this to you before, this is the biggest miscarriage of justice in this whole scenario, that a bloke was murdered on his way to court and then they've manipulated the whole investigation to suit a number of agendas. It remains to be seen whether Victoria Police will reinvestigate this case, given it's caused them such embarrassment and heartache. There are still legitimate leads they can follow if they accept the author had completely lied his head off about killing Shane Chartres-Abbott. For instance, 
they could speak to Roberto Crupi, who was Perry's partner in his drug business. There's one bloke who I call the luckiest fellow in Victoria, oh. who was the second man who was conveniently replaced by Ange Gooses in the author's story, completely falsely. He was never spoken to. They know who he is. They've got a description that wasn't too far away. What's happened to him, do you know? What's happened to him, do you think? I don't know. It, um, I don't laugh at what's happened, but I laugh at his just a comedy of what's gone on here. And then you look behind it and you realise what how serious and what it is, you know, a miscarriage of justice, but it's corruption at the highest level. The tunnel vision of the Briars investigators meant they spent more time trying to rope David Waters and Peter Lawler into the author's conspiracy than following the evidence they had from the beginning. Even the leading suspect, Mark Perry, was offered a deal to incriminate Lawler and Waters, according to Chip Legrand of The Age. They said, look, if you tell us what you know about the corrupt police and we can help you out here. So even Perry himself, had he decided to implicate police, there's no doubt that he would have never faced a murder charge. That they would, again, they would have been willing to put aside anything that Mark Perry might have done in order to, to really sort of nail these police. Perry has been acquitted and, of course, is now entitled to the presumption of innocence. But he can still be recharged with the murder if fresh and compelling evidence comes to light. It's far from certain that will happen, but at least finally the Royal Commission has shed light into how the Briars investigation was botched and Gobbo's role in that. It's a reverse onus. We're having to prove ourselves innocent here, that we had nothing to do with it. Whilst we weren't charged, we may as well have been. The majority of the people that you meet on the street think the police can't do anything wrong and believe them. What a diabolical mess Victoria Police has created for itself. In 39 months as a registered human source, Gobbo had run riot. She'd betrayed her clients and friends alike. She allegedly perverted the course of justice helped to derail a murder investigation and was a possible suspect in another double homicide. And all the while, she'd courted the potential of her own death if she was discovered. In 2015, Gobbo had claimed she turned informer for altruistic reasons. But in an interview with the ABC's 7.30 report in late 2019, she changed her story utterly. Police had forced her. One of the pressures at that time, the gangland war period, was <clears throat> police executing search warrants on solicitors' offices, checking money in trust accounts. So um, I made the assumption that, as, as a number of lawyers did, that our phones were being unlawfully monitored and that, of course, things can be taken out of context. So I think the police, they certainly gave people such as myself the impression that they had stuff that they would use. Once she'd become an informer, there was no way out. They made it clear to me that if I didn't continue to assist them and to do what they asked, they would release my name and effectively feed me to the wolves. Gobbo claimed that in betraying her drug lord clients, she jumped from one gang into the arms of another, Victoria Police. I went from effectively feeling like I was controlled by one to being manipulated in a much worse way by a, a huge organisation that's got more power and is more dangerous than any purported or alleged criminal. 
She could have stopped at any time and disappeared overseas. That, however, didn't suit her police handlers. She was a dangerous habit that was hard to break. And now, remarkably, she claims the cops want her dead. There's always going to be a risk, but my greatest fear is the police themselves. In episode five of Understate Lawyer X, I examine the chain of responsibility for what happened in the scandal. The cover-ups... Are you suggesting um, that you informed the Director of Public Prosecution that Ms Gobbo was an informer? No. So you didn't give him the full knowledge? Um, no. And why the police continued to use the barrister as an informer even when they knew it was wrong? That it, the ethics were fucked but it was not illegal? Yeah. Uh, I think so. Well, I mean... Certainly I agree the ethics were fucked. Yeah. Is there the potential for that to be illegal conduct? Uh, potentially. Could it be, for example, that um, it might have a tendency to pervert the course of justice? Well, it, it, it could do. Understate is written and produced by Adam Shand. Audio editing, mixing and original score by Matt Nikolich. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nollywe Shand. Understate is a Podcast One Australia production.